For as the light of the morning cometh out of the east, and shineth even unto the west, and covereth the whole earth, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Therefore sanctify yourselves, that your minds become single to God, and the days will come that you shall see him. For he will unveil his face unto you, and it shall be in his own time, and in his own way, and according to his own will. This is Unveiling Jesus Christ. Hello, and welcome to another podcast, that's Pa with a silent G, on Unveiling Jesus Christ. I'm John Cassinet, as usual, I'll be your host, and I'm going to be talking today about verses 9 through 11 of Revelation chapter 1, which I entitled, John's Charge to Write to the Seven Churches. Now, I want to start off by saying that uh, these verses are essentially where the Revelation formally begins. Everything up until now has been kind of introductory. It's a preface. It contains certain superscriptions, but this is really where we start to dig into the meat of the Revelation. Here we begin the doctrines of Christ, uh, which are universally expressed in the book of Revelation. Now, you might ask yourself, what's the value of going through the book of Revelation verse by verse, as I'm doing now in this series of my podcasts? Um, and these verses are essentially the building blocks of the Revelation. They're kind of like the atoms are that fundamental uh, piece of matter that defines our physical existence. If you break everything down to its basic building blocks, then these verse-by-verse -verse discussions are like the atoms that are the building blocks of our physical existence. And sometimes, as you can see, and as I will be doing again today, we break those verses down even further into a phrase-by-phrase -phrase discussion. It's almost like you've taken the atom and you're now beginning this study of uh, quantum mechanics into the motion of subatomic particles. <laughs> <laughs> that might feel a little bit like what it feels like when we start going phrase by phrase and you're wondering, oh boy, will it ever end? Um, and this is just, uh, you know, a typical bait and switch for you. We've got the uh, promise that uh, I would give an advanced placement book of Revelation course and it's now turned into an advanced course on quantum scripture mechanics. So at any rate, uh, I welcome you, and I, I'm reminded, you know, when I was in uh, high school as a sophomore, it was the first year that they didn't require us to learn how to use a slide ruler. Now, my brother was one year ahead of me, and so the year he had uh, was a sophomore, he had to l learn to use the slide rule, and I remember him coming home and we thinking, what's this funky ruler? It's got this slide thing and this little lens, and who, who knows what the heck it was all about, and so when I got into it, he's sitting there warning me when I started my sophomore year going into my physics class and said, oh, you're going to hate it, and it was the first year they said, you know what? Calculators have become so advanced, we don't have to learn how to do slide rulers anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I think of that because here we are, some of you are probably thinking, oh, we've gone back in time or something. I'm learning how to do the slide rule of the book of Revelations in my, um, in my lifetime. And uh, so at any rate, I hope you'll enjoy um, today's podcast as we begin what is now the meat of the book of Revelation. We start out in uh, Revelation 1.9. So let me just start with reading that. It says, quote, I, John, 
who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ, close quote. Now, it's kind of interesting that John identifies himself as the author slash writer of the Revelation saying, I, John. This is the first of three times that he identifies himself by name in the book of Revelation. And I note that because it needs to be contrasted, of course, with what he does in his gospel and what he does in his epistles. For example, in his epistles, he refers to himself in the third person as the elder. In uh, his gospel, of course, uh, we all recognize he was the disciple whom Jesus loved and in various other places, simply referring to himself as the disciple. But yet here, in the book of Revelation, he identifies himself by name. He doesn't give any kind of title or indication of his position of authority in the church or anything else. He just says, hi, it's John, <laughs> you know, that guy that we probably all should know. Uh, if you kind of contrast this also with the writings of Daniel, it's similar to the way that Daniel introduced himself in chapter 7, 9, and 10. He starts out saying, I, Daniel, did a certain thing or whatever, whatever. Um, so this is kind of ties into some of the resemblances that exist between these Old and New Testament apocalyptic seers that we call Daniel and John. And so they share these types of apocalyptic similarities. And as I've mentioned before, this, these kinds of similarities are the very reason why uh, the uh, people who were deciding what would be included in the Bible canon uh, ultimately decided the book of Revelation was authentic because of the similarities that existed with other apocalyptic writings such as Daniel, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and others. But uh, there are no other scriptures or scripture writers that actually use this type of phraseology, that is, I, John, or I, Daniel. And so it's just kind of interesting in that respect. Now, John was, of course, the last of the living apostles uh, from the ancient church, and he was probably, uh, by 96 AD at the time of this writing, the most distinguished, revered office holder in the church. He was the last one to hold the, the office of an apostle, yet he never mentions that in his introduction or by way of introducing himself. He kind of is still this humble and meek person describing himself as a brother in the community of believers. Uh, you know, today if we were introducing ourselves similarly, we'd probably say, hey, I'm your bro, or hey, homies, <laughs> how's everybody doing? So if you compare John's kind of attitude toward simply introducing himself as John without any elder or president or whatever the case might be, you kind of compare that to what's stated in uh, Doctrine and Covenants section 50, verse 26, that says, He that is ordained of God and sent forth, the same is appointed to be the greatest, notwithstanding he is the least and the servant of all. Close quote. And that's kind of the sense I have of uh, what John is doing here in connection with the introduction to this uh, verse 9 in the first chapter of the book of Revelation. He also identifies himself as a brother. 
I am your brother, all right? So that's the next little phrase. So we're, we're breaking it down to this subatomic particle we call a brother. And we have to talk about what that really means in the context of what John is writing. And first of all, I, I think it is a term of endearment. He aligns himself with his fellow believers um, and uh, that's the way they kind of recognize each other and how they treat each other. It's kind of this emotional thing. Kind of want to compare that back in the days when uh, Joseph Smith was the prophet. Everybody kind of referred to him as Brother Joseph. And so uh, that's um, essentially a lot like the sense or the feeling that we get here with uh, John the Apostle as he talks about being a brother in tribulation and a brother in the patience that needs to be exhibited. Now, these notions of tribulation and patience are uh, one of the main themes in the book of Revelation. And, and similarly with the prophet Joseph Smith, we have to consider the fact that he was incarcerated at Liberty Jail for about four or five months. It began on December 1st of 1838 and continued until uh, roughly the middle of October of 1839. And there's a certain sense of irony about his false imprisonment in a jail called Liberty, of all things. But I mention that because John, we're about to find out, was uh, imprisoned and banished to the island of Patmos here in about 96 AD and he's talking to his fellow brothers and sisters in the church and he's going to be talking about things like tribulation and patience and so it was also with the prophet Joseph Smith when he was in prison in Liberty Jail for it was during that period of his imprisonment that 12,000 saints had to flee Missouri over to across the Mississippi River going eastbound to uh, Quincy, Illinois because of the extermination order that had been issued by uh, Governor Boggs in Missouri. And so uh, these were the kinds of trials and tribulations that the early saints were facing even as Joseph was imprisoned in much the same way that John was imprisoned on the island of Patmos. Just uh, a lot of tribulation and trials uh, that were going along. And concerning his tribulation, the prophet Joseph Smith wrote, quote, When I contemplate upon all things that have been manifested, I am aware that I ought not to murmur, and do not murmur, only in this, that those who are innocent are compelled to suffer for the iniquities of the guilty. Close quote. We find that in the teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith at pages 34 and uh, 35. But at any rate, we, we have this, uh, this parallel, if you will, of Joseph's imprisonment in, at Liberty Jail uh, that then leads into this concept of the tribulation that uh, was being faced by the saints in the early history of the church. And as we contemplate uh, tribulation and why we have tribulation in our lives, Joseph Smith received this revelation in Doctrine and Covenants section 121 at verses 7 and 8, which says, quote, My son, peace be unto thy soul. Thine adversary and thine affliction shall be but a small moment, and then, if thou endure it well, God shall exalt thee on high. Thou shalt triumph over all thy foes. Close quote. 
So it was this revelation and others that uh, were some of the most sublime teachings and doctrines that uh, were received by the prophet during his time of incarceration. He experienced some of his greatest spiritual growth. And B.H. Roberts described the experience saying, it was more temple than prison so long as the prophet was there, close quote. And I find that that's true, and it's true in our individual lives as well, that when we're going through tribulations and hardships and difficulties, it is part of a refining process that can help us grow spiritually where that type of growth would not otherwise be possible but for the existence of tribulation in our lives. And so as John is writing to his fellow brothers and sisters in the gospel, he describes himself as our companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. Now, what's kind of interesting about this particular phrase in uh, verse 9 is something that Daniel Whedon pointed out, saying that between the two sad words of tribulation and patience, you find the joyous word kingdom, which bravely sparkles forth. It is a kingdom, and in the midst of sorrow and struggle, it is a reminder of triumph and power in the very center of trial. And so I think that's a good way of kind of uh, looking at this, the, these concepts of tribulation, the kingdom, the patience that needs to be associated with that. Now, if we look again individually at the word companion, this comes from the Greek sunkoinonos, uh, which means a fellow partaker. So when we're talking about John being a companion in tribulation, essentially the, the Greek sense or the intent of the Greek is to identify as John as a fellow partaker of the tribulations that other saints in his day were also experiencing. And that's not hard to imagine. I mean, the book of Revelation was received and written at a time when John personally was persecuted. He was banished and imprisoned for his testimony of Jesus Christ. So he was not merely a casual observer of what was going on around him ever since the time of the crucifixion of the Savior, but he was a co-partner with members of the church in tribulation. So let's talk about what this notion is of what the word tribulation also means, uh, because there's tribulation and there is the question of how are you supposed to deal with it, because it entails the idea of being born with persevering endurance. Now keep in mind that the time that John was writing the book of Revelation is during the period of the fifth seal, which is the age of martyrdom identified in Revelation chapter 6, 9 through 11. That's that part of the vision that John saw when the fifth seal was open, the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and the testimony that they held were seen under the altar representing their martyrdom and, and they were crying and pleading unto God for vindication for their deaths and the trials and persecutions that they had to uh, endure. Now some of the uh, more particular uh, difficulties that they were experiencing and I'll, I'll get into these in more detail later on but just by way of a quick overview uh, we had the first Christian persecution that began in 64 AD 
under Emperor Nero, who was the emperor of Rome uh, from about 54 to 68 AD. And it was in 64 AD that he, he caused a, a great fire to occur in Rome. And uh, he then blamed it on the Christians because he was getting a lot of backlash for the fact that this fire existed. A lot of people thought that he had set it and then he didn't do a whole lot to fix it because he had these big building plans that if I can burn down the city, we can rebuild it into uh, my image and all these other kinds of things. And so uh, that's essentially when a lot of the uh, persecutions began um, whereas they'd been not so much at the emperor level, but with Nero's approval, the persecution of Christians was greatly enhanced. And, and the kind of torture and tribulation, you've got to imagine, this was the, uh, the great era of the, uh, the gladiators at the Roman Colosseum when Christians were, uh, were put in against wild animals and to be slaughtered. Um, this was the time when uh, they were killed and their their heads were dipped in tar and they became basically streetlights for uh, the people who were living in Rome. So these are some of the things that uh, you kind of have to imagine were going on. And so when John talks about tribulation, he's not talking about trivialities. These are really, really serious stuff. And the same was uh, pretty much true during the era of uh, Domitian uh, when the second Christian persecution kind of came along. And Domitian was the emperor from 81 through 96 AD. And he had different motives for causing and bringing about Christian persecutions, but uh, a lot of what was experienced under the Neronian rule came to exist under the rule of Domitian as well. One of the other uh, significant uh, problems of tribulation that existed in the church was the extent of the apostasy that was also increasing within the church. So it was not just tribulation of a temporal or physical kind, it was tribulation of a spiritual kind as well. And when we talk about apostasy, we're thinking of the Greek word that essentially equates to this concept or notion of a political overthrow, which is a deliberate defection of loyalty. And, and so essentially, uh, as an apostasy, we're talking about a revolution within the church in addition to the external persecution that existed on a temporal basis. So Paul the Apostle described both in Acts chapter 20, verses 29 through 30, when he said, quote, For I know this, that after my departing, shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Now that's item number one. That's the spiritual kind of, or the, uh, the physical kind of troubles that the church faced from these grievous wolves externally coming in and not sparing the flock. In other words, it was the cause of death and other physical troubles and calamities. So the second part of that verse says, Number two, also of your own selves shall men arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. And that's the second part of this. That is from internally within the church, we have these tribulations that exist where there were apostates speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them and bringing them out of the church. So I'm going to read that verse again in hope because I kind of 
interrupted it, but it says again, keep in mind the two parts of it. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock, also of your own selves shall men arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them, close quote. So some, uh, just a quickie illustration of the kinds of perverse doctrines that existed in the church by the time of 96 AD. We had, uh, first of all, docetism, which is a, comes from a Greek word that uh, means to seem or to appear. And under this teaching, the, uh, the doctrine was espoused that Jesus only seemed mortal, but he wasn't in fact mortal. And so that's where this, these false doctrines of docetism kind of come in. Another major type of doctrine was uh, Gnosticism. And uh, this particular perverse doctrine emphasized personal spiritual knowledge or the gnosis. That's where this word comes from, is this concept that uh, there are those who were outside the teachings of a religious institution and they distinguished themselves by their knowledge of a supreme but hidden God uh, versus a more malevolent, lesser dignity, divinity in the person of Jesus Christ. And so even though uh, Christ was the creator of the material universe, they viewed this material existence as something that was flawed or evil um, and that uh, salvation came about only through a knowledge of the hidden divinity obtained through mystical and pagan beliefs. So they had this very distorted concept and uh, role of the atonement. Just to give you an idea just how bad this is, they, they had a doctrine or this teaching as it came out more openly among the members of the church was the concept that it's you're free to indulge in all of these uh, physical immorality and uh, idol worship and things of this nature because uh, you know the atonement exists to cleanse us of these types of sins and transgressions so let's put it to work for us so their concept was let's do evil let's let's do these gross uh, transgressions and uh, immoral kinds of things so that uh, you know the the atonement will actually have something to do and so the, these are some of the doctrines that existed within Gnosticism and you can see just exactly how perverse they were and so when Paul speaks about these perverse kinds of things that draw away disciples, it's not hard to understand how the apostasy could gain a foothold from within the church. Now, let's talk a little bit more about the concept of tribulation, particularly as it's connected to the kingdom of Jesus Christ in the same verse. And it's important to understand that one of the basic principles is that if we suffer with Christ, we shall also reign with him. And as we endure, whatever follows from our friendship and our attachment with Christ, we will gain the blessings of exaltation and eternal life. And speaking of this concept, the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 5.3, quote, We glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, close quote. In Acts 14.22, uh, Luke wrote that it is only through much tribulation that saints enter into the kingdom of God. And so <clears throat> we have to ask ourselves, 
why is tribulation uh, such an important part of the gospel and in particular our acquisition of glory in the celestial kingdom. So I'm going to go through just a few verses that kind of touch on these concepts so that we can have a little bit better understanding of what this whole idea of tribulation is all about. So I, I begin with uh, 1 Thessalonians 3, 3 through 4, that says, quote, that no man should be moved by these afflictions, for yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. For verily, when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation, even as it came to pass, and ye know. Close quote.
I'm now putting up on the screen Revelation chapter 7, verse 14, which is a verse that describes exalted saints in heaven or the celestial paradise, saying, quote, These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb, close quote. And so this also describes how through tribulation we will be able to gain exaltation and uh, be as our Heavenly Father is. And uh, I want to point out one other verse in 3 Nephi, chapter 15, verse 9, that starts out with the saying, Look unto me. Now, I'm not going to read the rest of the verse yet or tell you what the rest of the verse is. Uh, you know, this is kind of a, a teaser. But uh, when, you, when you hear these words, and this is the Savior speaking to the Nephites that uh, survived the great calamities on the American continent at the time of his crucifixion. And so as he's there among these survivors, he's saying, look unto me. And that can apply to us as well. And the question is, when you hear the words spoken by Christ, look unto me, what image do you see when you hear or read these words? Again, look unto me, what comes to mind? This is kind of one of those uh, games the, the, the psychologists or psychiatrists play with their patients. Not that I've ever been. <laughs> I'm just speaking from my experience of watching TV. Uh, you know, they have these word association games, uh, or they, they they show them a card. Okay, what's the first word that comes to mind? You know, so this is one of those uh, those word games. It says, "Look unto me." What is the image? Now, perhaps you you might be thinking you might have the image of his birth. You might have the image of uh, him when he was a youth while teaching in the temple. I'm just giving you some possible things that you might imagine. What about his baptism, his miracles, walking on water and other faith-promoting events? Or you get down closer to the end of his life when he's sharing the, an intimate Passover meal with his disciples and uh, you might the sacrament might come to mind as you uh, think about this saying look unto me and we think about the uh, the prayers uh, the sacrament or sacrament prayers where um, there's always using this word remember 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 um, you might be thinking of Gethsemane and uh, the the bleeding from every pore uh, you might think of his trial, his scourging. You might think of the cross where he was pierced and bleeding and where uh, he spoke uh, those uh, significant uh, words saying, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Close quote. When he felt uh, very much abandoned by even his own father during his last moments alive on the cross. Um, and you, you might think about uh, some of the scriptures that talk about how Christ descended below all things that he might be able to ascend above all things. So these are some of the things that perhaps might come to mind as you think of these words, look unto me in 3 Nephi chapter 15 verse 9. Now, what I'm going to do now that we've gone through our list is I'm going to read the entire verse to you. And it says this, quote, Look unto me, and endure to the end, and ye shall live. For unto him that endureth to the end will I give eternal life. Close quote. So 
the reason I did that little exercise is because you think about this concept of, yeah, let's look unto the Savior. Um, and when you think about that, what that really means, what he's saying it means, what it means for you to look unto me is basically to keep my commandments and endure to the end like I endured to the end, and then shall ye live. For unto him that endureth to the end, that's he and she to whom I give eternal life. So there's a lesson to be learned in this concept of uh, looking to the Savior, who, above all, he had the most tribulation of any person ever in this universe. He descended below all things, and that uh, indicates and suggests that uh, he suffered infinitely that he might bring about an atonement that was likewise infinite in his scope. And that's the nature of him descending below all things, that he could ascend above all things and rise all of us up to be at his level with him. Now, Elder Maxwell said this uh, in regard to uh, the idea of tribulation. He said, we must pay for what he calls the, quote, dues of discipleship, close quote. I like that. And so essentially, um, when you think about the trials that uh, you have in your life, uh, I'm sure there isn't any of us who haven't at some point prayed that the trials and challenges that we're going through uh, could be made easier. To, you pray, take away these trials. Uh, please make my, my life easier. But the, the prayer that we should be expressing is really, please help me to endure. Please help me to endure in patience. Um, and that's really what has to be said. And keeping in mind, of course, that the, uh, the Savior has the ability to, uh, through his atonement, to bless us in a way that even if we're not perfect in our patience, even if we don't completely overcome the trials that we have in our life, he is a great compensator and uh, he will help us. And I'm reminded of a scene in the, uh, the movie Pride and Prejudice, or the series actually. It's the, the one that was produced by uh, the BBC and it uh, stars uh, Colin Firth. And uh, hopefully you've seen that version. I mean, to, for, for my money, it's the only version worth watching. <laughs> but that's just me speaking. So the, the scene I'm thinking about is uh, after Mr. Wickham has uh, basically seduced uh, poor, stupid Lydia to elope, and uh, he has basically entrapped her. Um, it's after that has occurred, and uh, Mr. Bennett, Elizabeth, and Jane are out in the back of the estate, and they're talking about a letter that Mr. Bennett has received from his uh, brother-in-law uh, about how much it's going to cost for the family to save face by paying the debts of Mr. Wickham so that he'll actually marry Lydia and try and bring back some, you know, semblance of uh, order and dignity to this family that otherwise will be viewed as, uh, you know, these low lies. So they share the uh, shame of Lydia, right? And so how much is it going to cost to pay off this uh, Mr. Wickham? And now we know at the time of this scene, of course, that Mr. Darcy has already stepped in, kind of like a mediator who's going to help pay the price 
that the Bennets could not afford. He's going to pay off Wickham and do what's necessary, helping the Bennets do something for themselves that they could never do for themselves. And so he's acting in a true mediatorial role here. And so as, as the letter is being read about, okay, we're going to have to pay off Mr. Wickham's debts and there's so much. And then, uh, you know, essentially they come to the letter and, and all of a sudden it's like, okay, they're waiting for the other shoe to drop. How much do we actually have to pay Mr. Wickham? And it doesn't come. It's not in the letter, right? And so when Elizabeth's hearing this letter, she's asked the, she asks the question, how is it possible that he will accept so little? And Mr. Bennett's response was, well, it's got to be my brother-in-law who's paid him some great sum of money, and how shall I ever be able to repay this? But they're all just stunned that uh, they're buying off Mr. Wickham uh, for so little money. And, and the reason I share that scene with you is because, well, I like the show, number one, <laughs> and I find, uh, I find it fascinating. But it, it, so it is with the price of tribulation that we pay for exaltation. That's the point of my telling you this story, is that there is this tribulation, this price that we all have to pay for exaltation. And one of the, what, again, what, uh, Elder Maxwell calls the dues of discipleship, uh, it's all something that we have to pay. And yet the reality of it is, how is it possible that we can pay so little for what we get in the way of exaltation? How is it possible that God is willing to accept so little for all that he gives to us in the form of his in kingdom worlds without end and uh, that's the that's the real truth of the matter and so uh, I know tribulation is not an easy thing uh, some of us face more tribulation and hardship than others and uh, we feel like we're being piled on a little bit uh, but but God knows all things from the beginning from the end he knows what is going to be best for us that gives us the best possible chance of being exalted in his kingdom. So that's just a little bit about uh, tribulation. And if you're, if you're tired of tribulation, then you're not going to be happy when I move to the next subject, which is the subject of patience. <laughs> because we're not only supposed to uh, endure all of the tribulations, we're supposed to do it with patience, without complaining, without murmuring, the M word, right? Um, and uh, patience, of course, in this verse also speaks the patience of Jesus Christ, who is our King. And what's kind of noteworthy about that is, you know, patience is not really seen as a kingly virtue. It's uh, more often than not when we see some type of king, unless, of course, you're King Benjamin in the Book of Mormon and the, these few kings that are few and far between, um, most of the time kings are an impatient lot. Uh, they're a demanding lot. Uh, they, they are not very forgiving. I mean, we see this in the animated version of Robin Hood with Prince John, right? He's not a patient king at all. He wants his subjects to suffer. He wants their gold. He wants Robin Hood dead. And uh, he's screaming to make things like that happen. And uh, the interesting kind of thing is, as John talks about this notion of patience, he reverses this concept that kinghood is not something that should be severed 
from patience, but is bound up with it. So kingly virtues are entwined with patience, and indeed, they depend upon it. This is one of those attributes of God our Father and his son Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, never was there a murmuring voice from the Savior. He said, you know, if it be possible, let this pass from me. Nevertheless, not thy will be done, not my will be done, but thine be done. And so these are the kinds of things that uh, the Savior expresses about patience. And again, it's one of those things that we can look unto him uh, if we want to understand what it means to be uh, truly patient in our afflictions. But patience is, uh, is also tied to the concept or principle doctrine of faith. Unduly impatient people suggest they know better than God how their lives should go and what kinds of trials and tribulations should be faced. Uh, it, at best, it denies uh, or at least disputes the reality of God's omniscience of knowing better than we do what is best for us. Now, the concept or word of patience is found seven times in the book of Revelation. It's probably not coincidental that it's mentioned seven times, seven being the, the perfect number of completeness and a sacred numbers. Uh, but almost always when patience is found in the book of Revelation, it's speaking of the saints' endurance of trials and tribulations. And it includes patiently enduring, waiting, persevering, meekly bearing all indignities, privations, suffering for the sake of Christ, whatever it might be, recognizing at all times, of course, that Christ is our exemplar in all things, including suffering, as I've mentioned before. And the idea here, as you think of this concept of patience um, in a doctrinal sense, you have to recognize that is more than a passive endurance. It is active perseverance. So we're not meant to be silent sufferers, right? We need to uh, let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Joseph Smith spoke of this in the context of temple building when he said, quote, Therefore let the saints be diligent in building the Nauvoo temple and all houses which they have been or shall hereafter be commanded of God to build and wait their time with patience in all meekness, faith, and perseverance unto the end. And that's found in the History of the Church at volume 5, page 2. Uh, compare this, this whole notion of patience um, with the concept of uh, working out at the, uh, the gym uh, for the building of your physical temple that is our body. All right. Now, here it is, uh, the year 2024. I've turned over a new leaf. I'm going to start working out at the gym, and I have been. I haven't done so for a long time, and so it's a painful process for me, but I've started, I, I'm running, and I'm, you know, pumping some iron in the uh, gym, and uh, the reason that you do that is because even though it's a painful process, uh, there are so many benefits that come from it that uh, we're willing to make these sacrifices and to do these things for the blessings that will inure to us. So just keep that analogy in mind if it's helpful in terms of the idea of trying to be more patient in your tribulations. Now, John's personal tribulations included, of course, his banishment to the obscure island of Patmos, 
probably at the time by which he was about 90 years old. He was exiled there by the emperor Domitian, who was the brother of Titus. And Titus is the guy that destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD, some 25 years earlier. Now, when we talk about this concept of John being banished to the island of Patmos, there are two types of exile that existed within the Roman Empire. One of them was deportatio, which is a permanent loss of rights and property, and only the emperor could impose this type of very serious uh, deprivation in the life of someone who was being exiled to uh, some penal colony of some kind. The other type of exile was the relegatio, which lasted anywhere between about six months to 10 years. There was no loss of uh, rights or property. And this was the type of exile that could be imposed by the Roman Senate, by a city prefect or other officials within the Roman government. And this lesser type of exile was probably the type that John suffered by the Roman governor uh, in Asia. It was possible that Domitian exiled John, however, uh, because there are these traditions that before his exile, uh, he had uh, been brought to trial and uh, was condemned to die in boiling oil. And when they put him in the oil, of course, it didn't, didn't do any good. It didn't harm him. And that's because John was promised that uh, he would uh, not taste death until the second coming of Jesus Christ and was promised that he essentially would be translated. And so it's quite possible that even though uh, it appears because John only was on the island of Patmos for about 18 months that, well, that must mean that he was, uh, you know, suffering some type of lesser type of exile. But the reality of it is that uh, Domitian died in 96 AD and that prompted his uh, successor, Domitian's successor, Nerva, to kind of issue this broadband release of prisoners who were then serving time, which was not unusual for emperors to do in that day. So more, I think it's fairly likely that John, in fact, was uh, condemned to uh, his exile on the island of Patmos as a permanent condition, but because of the death of Domitian and the, uh, the grace, if you will, of Nerva, John eventually gets to leave the island, go back to uh, Ephesus where he was living before time and continued his uh, mission among the Ephesians and uh, elsewhere. Now, Patmos Island is a, a rocky little island in the Aegean Sea. It's about 50 miles south and west of uh, Ephesus. It was a mining colony where John had to uh, do mining and so it was not an easy lifestyle by any means, I'm sure, particularly given the fact that he was 90 years old. Um, and uh, it was used uh, by the Romans as a place of exile for the lower class of criminals. And so um, the tradition, as I mentioned, was he's probably there for about 18 months. And a lot of this information goes into the dating of the book of Revelation uh, that most place at the reign of Domitian between 95, 94 and 96 AD when uh, Domitian died. Now, John, we also learn, was exiled for the word of God. And when we talk about the word of God, it essentially means that because of his apost apostolic witness, he was treated as a felon 
and an outlaw. And uh, Joseph Smith's apostolic witness resulted in similar kinds of conditions. And uh, the prophet had this to say, quote, Know assuredly, dear brethren, that it is for the testimony of Jesus that we are in bonds and in prison. But we say unto you that we consider that our condition is better, notwithstanding our sufferings, than that of those who have persecuted us and smitten us and borne false witness against us. Close quote. And that's from the teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith, page 123. Now, ultimately, this concept of uh, being treated as a felon for the word of God, you have to recognize that Christ is the word of God. This is confirmed in Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. This says, quote, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto John, and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ. Similarly, in Revelation 19.13, it says, And he, meaning Jesus Christ, was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the word of God. Now, the word in Greek is logos, and it is the medium through which God promulgates his will and commandments. So Jesus is the word because he's the mediator and uh, he is the uh, executive who carries out the will of the Father and therefore he is the Logos, he is the word. And uh, in addition to that, we learn that uh, John was banished for his testimony of Jesus Christ. Now what this means is that John was a faithful witness for and about Jesus Christ, not merely because he was repeating a testimony given by Christ. So in this context, uh, where it talks about uh, all of this suffering that is going on, it essentially is tied back to this concept because of John's commitment to Christ in bearing a faithful witness of him. And so that's what we kind of need to understand about those particular phrases. So, having uh, discussed uh, in subatomic terms the uh, phraseology and wording in Revelation 1.9, I'm now ready to move on to uh, Revelation 1.10, which states as follows, quote, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, close quote. So, what this is telling us is that John was or became in the spirit when he received the revelation. And we have illustrations of this type of uh, activity uh, and type of experience in other places in the scriptures. For example, in Enos chapter 1, verse 10, it says, quote, And while I was thus struggling in the spirit, behold, the voice of the Lord came into my mind. Close quote. In Alma 8, chapter or chapter 8, verse 10, it says, quote, Nevertheless, Alma labored much in the spirit, wrestling with God in mighty prayer. Close quote. And similarly, in the case of the sons of Mosiah, it, uh, it describes in Alma 17, 5, how they, quote, had many afflictions. They did suffer much, both in body and in mind, such as hunger, thirst, and fatigue, and also much labor in the spirit. Close quote. So again, those are just some other illustrations 
where we have uh, prophets who are uh, in the spirit. And for John, he was in the spirit on the Lord's day, which essentially means that he was enveloped by the spirit while he was perhaps praying or meditating or involved in other acts of devotion on the Lord's day. And if you compare this to what Paul said, what was spoken of, of Paul in Acts 22, 17, it says, quote, and it came to pass that when I was come again to Jerusalem, even while I prayed in the temple, I was in a trance, close quote. And so that's another similar experience. And uh, essentially what John is telling us here in verse 10 is that he was filled or lifted up with the spirit. And so this concept of being in the spirit is essentially a prerequisite and a vehicle for receiving a vision from God. Uh, if we go and look at other scriptures, it talks about the fact that you can't have a testimony of Jesus Christ without having some revelation confirming in your heart and in your mind of the truthfulness of that testimony. And so it is ultimately through the power of the Holy Ghost that we have visions, that we have these truths that are bestowed from us, uh, for, upon us from a heavenly source. And so this, this notion of uh, being uh, in the spirit is the same as being filled with the spirit. Now, if you compare this with Doctrine and Covenants section 76, this is the, what is commonly referred to as, quote, unquote, the vision, right? And this is the one that talks about all the, the degrees of glory and was a, a marvelous vision that came to the prophet Joseph Smith on February 16, 1832, and also Sidney Rigdon. And it says in uh, verses 11 and 28, we, Joseph Smith Jr. and Sidney Rigdon, being in the spirit on February 16, 1832, and while we were yet in the spirit, the Lord commanded us that we should write the vision. And so I think that what you have here is a pretty close parallel to what was happening to John when he was in the spirit receiving the visions that we now call the book of Revelation. Um, now it's uh, possible that uh, the spirit or the Holy Ghost carried John to other locations. And uh, the, there are some people who think that that occurred, others who think, no, he's just kind of carried to a higher spiritual plateau, even though he didn't actually leave the uh, the island of Patmos during the time of these visions. Now, this concept of being in the spirit occurs four times in the book. And at each occasion where it describes John being in the spirit, it occurs in connection with a new and great revelation. And so here, for example, in verse 10, we have the first occasion where we have the start of revelation proper. We also find him in the spirit in Revelation chapter 4, verse 2, which is his vision of celestial paradise where he's looking up into heaven and kind of this there's this door open for him to see into heaven. We also have him in the spirit in Revelation 17, 3. But on this occasion, uh, it specifically tells us that an angel appeared to him, took him to a high mountain where he could then see a vision of the great whore and her fall uh, at the time of the second coming. And finally, in Revelation verse uh, or chapter 21, 
verse 10, it states that John again was taken to a high mountain where he sees the holy city of celestial Jerusalem descending from heaven. And so I don't think it's coincidental that uh, John on four separate occasions is in the spirit in the book of Revelation. It's one of those world number kind of fours uh, that gives you this all-encompassing feeling of uh, the experience that John had on a, on a rather worldwide or universal basis. And so, the, as I mentioned, there is this kind of a question as to the meaning about what this really means and whether there was a removal from the material scene. And it doesn't have to necessarily be a single answer because uh, in some instances it clearly seems to say that John was taken to a high mountain, uh, which others have experienced uh, as well. Uh, Bruce R. McConkie had this to say on this particular subject. He said, quote, Other prophets have been and would be transported bodily from place to place by the power of the Spirit. Ezekiel was lifted up and carried by the Spirit. Nephi was caught away in the Spirit of the Lord, yea, into an exceeding high mountain upon which he had never before set his foot. Mary herself was carried away in the Spirit at the time of the conception of Jesus. Nephi, the son of Helaman, was taken by the Spirit and conveyed away out of the midst of those who sought to imprison him. And thus he did go forth in the Spirit from multitude to multitude, declaring the word of God. After Philip baptized the eunuch, the Spirit of the Lord caught him away, and he was carried to Ozotus. It is not an unheard of thing for the Lord, by the power of the Spirit, to transport mortals from place to place, close quote. And again, that's Elder McConkie in The Mortal Messiah, Volume 1, pages 413 through 414. So answering the fundamental question, John's statement here in verse 10 isn't exactly clear as to what it means for him to have been in the Spirit and whether he was transported bodily away from the island of Patmos. But let me just add this one additional thought or concept when we contemplate the answer to that question. First, consider this, that Christ promised that John should not taste death. This is confirmed to us in 3 Nephi chapter 28, verse 16, where he's having a discussion with the 12 disciples whom he had called among the Nephite people. And three of these disciples, whom we call the three Nephites, desired the thing which John had desired. And therefore Jesus said, Blessed are ye, for ye shall never taste of death. Close quote. And so that confirms this concept that John was a translated being. And further, in John 21, verses 22 through 23, we find, quote, Jesus saith unto Peter, If I will that he, meaning John, tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. Then went this saying abroad among the brethren that that disciple should not die. Now, I'm going to pause here for just a second. If they had stopped the verse right at that point, it would be so much clearer, right? It's a clear statement that that disciple, meaning John, should not die. He was going to be translated. But then the verse adds this, quote, Yet Jesus said not 
unto him, he shall not die. But if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? It's like, oh, you know, why, <laughs> why couldn't you just leave well enough alone? But at any rate, uh, the, the, for those who understand the concept of John's translation, it's not confusing. It's, it's very clear. But if you don't understand the concept, it's like, okay, he just said he should not die. But I know I didn't say he wouldn't die. I just said if he tarries, what's it to you? <laughs> Like it's some hypothetical. But at any rate, finally, let me just share with you Matthew 16, 28, 16, 28, which states, quote, Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, close quote. And that obviously could only have reference to John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, that he would not die until the time of the second coming. So John, the essence is John has a translated body that empowers him to move about, quote, in the spirit, close quote. And so, for example, we know that John, because the second coming hasn't come yet, John is still a translated being. And he appeared to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery is uh, shown in the 29th section of the Doctrine and Covenants in order to restore the priesthood. And uh, he's not subject to sorrow, disease, death. Uh, and Elder McConkie confirms that those who are translated beings essentially have power to move and live in both a mortal and an unseen sphere. All right. And so this would suggest that given the fact that John is 90 years old, um, and presumably has uh, assumed this uh, translated body, particularly would that be the case if the traditions are true that an attempt was made on his life to boil him in oil and he survived that without harm or injury. You, you, in your mind, you're sitting there, oh, he's translated, okay? That's why that happens. And so by the time he gets to Patmos Island, He's already translated, and if he's already in a translated condition, it's not a far leap and a cry to assume that he has the power to be in the Spirit and to be physically transported from place to place, uh, just as others uh, have done so, as I've mentioned before. Another illustration of this would be Elijah and Elisha, as recorded in 2 Kings 2.11, where it is said that they still went on and talked that behold there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire and parted them both asunder and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven close quote so again we have an illustration of uh, Elijah being translated which is a fundamental doctrine of the church because he was needed to come back at the time of the uh, uh, visions, visions on the Mount of Transfiguration, and uh, he needed a body to be able to accomplish that ministry, and that's why he had to be translated along with Moses as well. Um, we also have the uh, illustration of Enoch and his people all translated, you know, and they move in uh, in mortal realms and in the spirit realm and so on and so forth. So I, again, the, the conclusion to draw from all this is that although Revelation 1.10 doesn't say specifically that John being in the spirit was transported 
to another place to see many of the visions taken up to heaven. He sees the temple of God on multiple occasions in the book of Revelation. Uh, it's just not difficult for me to imagine that he bodily in physical form was taken to the locations where he saw these visions and was able to see things both on a panoramic scale, both backwards and forwards in time. And so uh, that's a little bit about the concept of being in, in the spirit. And the, the conclusion to all this is that it all happened on the Lord's day. Now you might think that that's kind of a straightforward, everybody kind of figures and understands what that means, but there's actually some disagreement about what it means when it said John was in the spirit on the quote, Lord's day. Um, and so let me give you the bottom line and then I'll kind of tell you where some of these divergent views come from. It's essentially Sunday. We're talking here about the, the first day of the week in which the resurrection of Jesus Christ is celebrated. Now it's kind of interesting that this is the first occasion in the scriptures where the Lord's day is actually mentioned, right? And so all of these other um, scriptures that were written probably uh, 30 years earlier in the 60s of the first century and so on and so forth, they were still struggling with this concept of uh, transferring the worship services from the Sabbath or Saturday to Sunday. But by 96 AD, when John is writing, he's clearly identifying the Lord's Day as a term for Sunday. And it corresponds with the idea of uh, the Lord's Supper, which we find in 1 Corinthians 11.20. Uh, but essentially, this the concept of Sunday becoming the Lord's Day it takes the place of Saturday in Christianity. And uh, the same day um, the disciples met to break bread in Acts chapter 10, verse 7, it specifically identifies the first day of the week as to when that was occurring. So uh, the idea that I'm trying to convey here is essentially when we talk about the Lord's day, we're not talking about the last great day of judgment in the New Testament, which is frequently referred to as the day of the Lord. And so even though they convey kind of the same meaning, the day of the Lord is associated with the second coming, whereas the Lord's day is associated with the uh, Sabbath worship on a Sunday. So uh, keep in mind, if truly John had intended to refer to the Jewish Sabbath on Saturday, certainly he would have used the word Sabbath in his uh, in his account, but he didn't do that. He he referred to it as the Lord's Day rather than the Sabbath, which was of course uh, for you know the first uh, four centuries, the first four millennium of this earth was the weekly commemoration of God's rest after the sixth period of creation, and that's why the worship occurred on Saturday, the Sabbath. That's the day of rest. Well. Even though I've kind of laid out for you why I think um, the Lord's Day is referring here to a Sunday, there is this contrary view. And the, the contrary view comes from those who talk about the fact that the word Lord's is an adjective that has never been used 
uh, for in the Bible as the first day of the week. And as I mentioned before, the first time it ever happens is in the book of Revelation for the reason I already explained. Um, and so John was referring to a day of the Lord in the sense that was not typically the way that it was used in either the Old Testament or the New Testament because the transition hadn't been made from the worship of the Sabbath on a Saturday to the new day on Sunday to commemorate the, uh, the resurrection of the Savior Jesus Christ. Uh, now, this is not to say that John was not transpor transported forward in time to see the second coming as though it was then in progress. And that's part of this argument that some people are saying that uh, essentially when it talks about the Lord's Day, it refers to the second coming because John moved forward in time to see it. And therefore, he's quote unquote on the Lord's Day. In other words, he was having a uh, Marty McFly time travel experience uh, from back to the future. <laughs> so, uh, and the it's in taking that position, it would not be a plausible argument at all, except for the fact that in this apocalyptic context, it does tend to have some validity because time in an apocalyptic context tends to be blurred is about the best word I can use to describe it. Uh, and so, yeah, there's some notion that that could be the case. But again, uh, I, I don't think it really applies. Um, the other arguments that they make is that it wasn't possible for John to write the entire book of Revelation within one 24-hour day. And therefore, the Lord's Day can't possibly refer to this one particular Sunday when he was in the spirit. And uh, so those are some of the counter arguments, but I'm satisfied in my own analysis of the, uh, the description of the Lord's Day that we really are talking about the, uh, the Sunday, which is the first day of the week. And so, as I mentioned, the, the concept of going from the Jewish Sabbath on a Saturday to Christian worship on a Sunday uh, occurred over a period of several hundred years, in fact. So it wasn't like uh, the, the Savior simply taught this teaching during the apostolic era, during the time of his post-resurrection ministry, and boom, it just happened just like that. It, it took a little bit of effort, and we see that sometimes in the church today, don't we? We see uh, doctrines, teachings, policies, practices, procedures that the uh, brethren come down with and the prophet, and it, it takes us forever to implement them. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's a little bit what happened with the uh, Sunday worship. Um, and uh, it's called the, uh, the Lord's Day to replace the Jewish Sabbath. Uh, and this is confirmed in the writings of uh, several of the different Christian fathers, including Justin Martus, Martyr, Ignatius, Tertullian, and others. For example, Ignatius, who was a disciple of the Apostle John, he probably died, we're not sure, but probably uh, in either 108 or 140 AD. And he wrote the following. He said, quote, Every lover of Christ celebrates the Lord's Day consecrated to the resurrection of Christ as the queen and chief of all days, close quote. So there you have an example of one of the Christian fathers in these very early writings who confirm that the Sabbath day uh, of worship or the Lord's Day was that which celebrated the resurrection of Christ, which occurred on uh, on a Sabbath, Sunday morning, of course. 
Another Christian father of, of, of much later time period was uh, Chrysotom, and he was the Archbishop of Constantinople. He was born in, in 348, excuse me, 347 AD, and uh, he wrote that it was called the Lord's Day because the Lord rose from the dead on that day, close quote. And so we understand that as a doctrinal principle today and a truth that is uh, adopted in the church. But uh, um, the Archbishop of Constantinople, way back when, took that position as well. So good to know. Um, and so essentially the, the transition began during the apostolic period when they were trying to change from Saturday worship to uh, Sunday worship. And the, the, the Lord can have whatever day he wants, of course, to have himself worshiped and to have uh, worship because he's the Lord of the Sabbath. We learned that in Matthew 12, 8, where he was eating some corn and they were kind of husking the corn so that they could get uh, some food. And that was a violation of uh, the, the law of the Sabbath, according to the Pharisees. And so, you know, they're always challenging. They're challenging him for the miracles he performed on the Sabbath, blah, blah, blah. But the bottom line is Christ is the Lord of the Sabbath and he can designate whatever day of the week he so chooses in order for worship to occur and for this time to be set apart for the worship services to occur. But it was a, it was a transition, was a slow process because old habits die hard. Now, the Hebrew root for the Sabbath is seventh. In other words, the Sabbath day is the seventh day. And that's why it's hard to say, oh, okay, now we're going to start worshiping on the first day. Um, and during the transition period, there were some who worshiped on both uh, Saturday and Sunday uh, because we're trying to satisfy everybody to some extent. And there were certain vocational problems uh, where the Jews who predominantly worshipped on Saturdays and therefore Sunday was a work day. And if the Christians are trying to uh, worship on Sunday, well, in their society, that's a work day. And we, we have the same thing in our society today to a certain extent, although pretty much everybody ignores the Sabbath and that's how that problem got solved. But nobody worships, so problem solved, uh, but not back in that day. And so it, there was also a problem with persecution, depending on which day of the week you were worshiping. Um, and for for some for some Christians, if they uh, worshipped uh, on Saturday, uh, they would be confused with uh, with Jews who were oftentimes uh, the subject of persecution. But then, if they worshipped on Sunday, uh, the Jews would accuse them of not conforming to Roman law. Uh, it was an act or a symbol or a signification that uh, they were being disloyal to Rome. And so you could always know who these disloyal Christians were because they would be worshiping on Sunday. <laughs> and so it created a problem. Well, if I worship on Sunday, it's a darn if you do, darn if you don't situation. Uh, but ultimately, uh, Constantine, uh, who was the emperor in Rome, who basically uh, gave the uh, uh, state-favored status to the, uh, the Christian religion in the early 4th century, he actually made a proclamation that allowed for rest from work on Sundays in 321 AD. And then following this, there was also a council 
at uh, Laodicea in 350 AD where it was decreed that Christians would no longer keep the seventh day by refraining from labor. And so, again, all of this is kind of this transition period, and it, it continued on really until almost the end of the 5th century when the doctrine of Sunday worship uh, became truly ingrained in, uh, in all Christian religions of whatever form they happened to take. And so uh, it, it was not an easy thing. But back in John's day in 96 AD, um, he certainly was aware of the doctrine and that the Lord's day was the first day of the week being Sunday. Now, what happens when he's on the spirit here in the Lord's day, we learn in the next phrase in verse 10, where it says that I heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. And so we have this concept. First of all, he hears this sound. It's behind him. It's meaning it's unexpected and sudden. It kind of reminds me of the kids growing up. They'd always, they love to scare my wife, Jan. And so they'd jump out of somewhere behind her or something like that and scare. And then, of course, she had to chase them down and, uh, and uh, make them pay for their uh, evils. <laughs> but at any rate, so that's kind of the situation with John is all of a sudden this voice is heard behind him. But what the... Uh, the indication of this language is, is that essentially because the Savior is behind him symbolically, it is a representation that his full presence was veiled from John so that he could not see him. Now, eventually he's going to turn in Revelation 1.12 to see what the source of the voice is, and then he sees the seven golden candlesticks. And guess what? We're going to talk about that uh, in next week's podcast. Um, but you compare this situation to what happened when the Savior appeared to the Nephites in 3 Nephi chapter 9. And I'm going to quote to you verses uh, 1 through 2 and then 18, which says, quote, And it came to pass that there was a voice heard among all the inhabitants of the earth upon all the face of this land crying, Woe, woe, woe unto this people. I am Alpha and Omega the beginning and the end, close quote. So again, what we see here in these verses in the, the third book of Nephi is this concept that they heard a voice and then subsequently they'll actually be able to see the Savior himself. And, uh, and that's what's exhibited here also in uh, the book of Revelation. Now the next phrase that we encounter in the book of Revelation is uh, in verse 12 here is this statement as of a trumpet, meaning that the voice that John heard was as of a trumpet. This is a phrase that is used about 56 times in the book of Revelation, and it's usually used to introduce a symbol. Now, we find a similar situation in Alma 29, 1, where Alma was desiring to speak with the trump of God. And you remember there's that song, I haven't heard it recently, but uh, you know, the old song that uh, you may have heard about, Oh, that I were an angel. <laughs> so I know I've broken my own rule. I'm not supposed to sing on the podcast, so my apologies. So uh, forget that I said that. Um, but at any rate, that's, that's what the symbol is. And the idea 
is that if you can speak with the trump of God, you're speaking very clearly, very loudly. With It's distinct like a trumpet. In this case, it's the voice of Jesus Christ, the same as it was Jehovah on Mount Sinai when he spoke with the voice of a trumpet exceeding loud when he was meeting with uh, Moses to uh, deliver the law. Now, the, uh, the trumpet here in this verse is an allusion to the ram's horn or shofar from the Old Testament. And in Hebrew, shofar means brightness, and it has reference to the clearness of its sound. It's a long, straight horn, probably about 18, 18 inches long. In Daniel 3, by contrast, uh, there, it, there is reference to a horn, but the Hebrew word karen is used, which refers to a curved horn uh, that you might see on some Colombian sheep. Not Colombian in the sense that the sheep is from Colombia, but it's a breed of sheep. <laughs> okay, so at any rate, here, here we have in this imagery, as of a trumpet, the idea that uh, the trumpet is a symbol for war and for judgment. Uh, the sound of it inspires awe and terror. Uh, but the shofar can also be used to sound an alarm or to herald a king. And so the trumpets that sound in John's visions, uh, and there are a number of times when they're mentioned, these are all symbols that are calculated to fix John's attention on the event and to solemnize the vision. So essentially it assures John the divinity of the speaker and the importance of what was to follow. And that's the same is true for us as well. And so typically these trumpets are the announcement of new and divine manifestations. And so we find, for example, in Doctrine and Covenants section 77 verse 12, where these trumpets are discussed by the prophet Joseph Smith in his Q&A session with the Lord. It says, quote, Question, what are we to understand by the sounding of the trumpets mentioned in the 8th chapter of Revelation? And the answer is, the sounding of the trumpets of the seven angels are the preparing and finishing of his work in the beginning of the 7,000 years, the preparing of the way before the time of his coming, close quote. All right, so that's uh, <clears throat> Revelation uh, 1, uh, 10. Let's move on now somewhat more quickly to Revelation chapter 1, verse 11, which states, quote, saying, this is what the trumpet is saying, or the voice of the Savior is saying, quote, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea, period, close quote. Now, first of all, the phrase that we want to focus on just very briefly is the uh, Savior's uh, self-designation as the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. I actually spoke of this in my uh, podcast from yesterday because the same term is found in Revelation 8.1. So in my podcast for section 8 of my book, that deals with the Revelation 1.8, you can get more information upon that. And so we're not going to spend any more time talking about it in this particular podcast. But what John is told next is that what thou seest, write in a book. In other words, make a record of everything. 
describe things as they occurred. Now, Dr. Uh, Richard Draper makes this observation that in this particular grammatical form, the aorist verb tense is used in an imperative way. And uh, typically in, the, uh, in this verb tense, you don't get a real clear understanding or clear picture of who the speaker is. Um, and so by this, the implication is, is that John was commanded to write at the very time while he was in the spirits. And the words indicate that the document was produced under divine mandate. This same command occurs 12 times in the book of Revelation. Again, you get these numbers that have symbolic significance, 12 being the priesthood number or the church number. And so <clears throat> the, the command to write um, occurs with each of the seven letters to the seven churches, and then it occurs an additional five times in relationship to the vision as a whole, as is the case here in uh, verse number 11. And so uh, that's how these, uh, these commands are essentially uh, given in this particular chapter. Now, it's also noteworthy that a similar commission was given to Joseph and Oliver in uh, Doctrine and Covenants section 76, which I've already referred to above, and uh, it's referred to as the vision. Well, in the vision, Joseph and Oliver were commanded five times to write while they were in the spirit. And for example, in DNC 76, verse 113, it says, quote, This is the end of the vision which we saw, which we were commanded to write while we were yet in the spirit, close quote. And so this command to write there and here is to write everything while it's fresh in your mind, don't let it linger on. It's kind of like writing in your journal, right? You have to write every day in order for you to get down everything and to remember everything. And if you wait until weeks, months later, it's like, now what do I, I can't remember when all these things happen. And so it's not very good. And so the command is to write while you're in the spirit and to write quickly. Uh, don't, don't sit around and wait. So we have here the command to write a book about what John was about to see and hear. Now the Greek word for book is really volume. And what it refers to is a parchment if it is an animal skin or a papyrus if it is a plant fiber. It's essentially a roll. And so this roll or scroll gets rolled together on two rollers or cylinders or sticks or what have you uh, so that you can move it along. Now, given the fact that you've got this long scroll that exists, the writing had to be done in columns. So if they were writing on the scroll, you get each little column so that as you roll along, um, you can read one column, shift over to the next column, shift over to the next, and start rolling and scrolling. You can imagine how horrible it would be if they wrote in long, <laughs> one sentence goes down the whole scroll. So you'd be, you'd be scrolling the whole time back and forth. It'd be crazy. So at any rate, to solve that problem, they would write in, uh, in columns, which literally in Greek means doors. Uh, the, the Greek word delathoth, uh, which is the, the word for writing in columns means doors. For whatever reason, I don't understand why uh, <clears throat> they would use that term, but they do. So uh, essentially this, this library of holy writings, including the, uh, the book of Revelation and those of the, uh, the New Testament, 
were originally these collection of scrolls. And so um, by 200 plus years after the last scroll of the Christian Bible was written, the Romans finally developed what is known as a codex or a compilation of leaf pages. And so essentially uh, all of the uh, books of the New Testament, uh, Old Testament, everything was written on scrolls because the, the pages of a book in the form that we are familiar with was not a development in the Roman Empire until 200 plus years after the last scroll of the Christian Bible was written. So that, that just indicates that even though the, the verse says that John should write a book, book really means roll or scroll. And his commandment was that he should send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia. Now I'm going to get into these seven churches in much more detail. So we're not going to spend any time talking about them in depth during uh, this podcast, but it's, it's sufficient for our purposes today to recognize that the scroll of what John saw and heard was to be sent to the seven churches. And since there was only one of them, uh, essentially it would be circulated among them in their turn. And probably, let me throw up a map of the seven churches here, um, it probably went in the order of the churches that were identified by John in this verse and elsewhere. And so you can see that uh, where the, uh, we would begin with the distribution of this single scroll would be down in Ephesus that's on the uh, coast there of the Aegean Sea. And then uh, you go up north to Smyrna and to Pergamos being the northernmost city. And then you, you go kind of down the inland route uh, from Pergamos all the way down to uh, Laodicea in that order. And that was probably the order of distribution of the book of Revelation. These churches, of course, um, are representative of the uh, universal church, which again, we'll describe in more detail in the uh, future podcasts. So uh, thanks again for listening. That uh, take, takes us through another exciting adventure into the uh, subatomic particles of uh, scripture study, looking at individual words and phrases that you find in the book of Revelation. And just keep in mind, I hope that you find, as I do, that these, uh, this, the information and what we understand about individual words and individual phrases, these are the building blocks of the doctrine of Jesus Christ. And they transcend many of the messages that are conveyed in the book of Revelation. And so I hope that you find, find them to be valuable in your uh, gospel study not only as it relates to the book of Revelation, but for understanding every other form of scripture that we have, both ancient and modern. And so thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing. Thanks for subscribing. Thanks for whatever it is that you're doing. <laughs> and thanks to Jenna Daly for uh, helping me out on the, uh, the uh, technical end of things. So next Saturday uh, on January 20th, 2024, we have uh, the section 10 of my book will be covered. And that in, consists of Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 15, which is a description of the symbolism of Christ being in the midst of the candlesticks. Because what happens is John, again, he heard the voice. He turns around to see who the voice is or what the voice is, what its source is, and what does he see? He sees Christ in the midst of seven candlesticks. So that's where we're going to pick it up next week, and I look forward to seeing you then.